A reading from the book of Revelations, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, which can be found in your church Bibles on page 1,235. That's 1, 2, 3, 5, Revelations chapter 3. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at which time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, it's incredible news of Audrey, but my wife, MJ, and I had uh, some time in his church when we were in Cambridge, and so we know Rufus and, and Liz well, uh, and we think he'll just be a perfect fit uh, for this church at St. Michael's in, in pushing and encouraging us forward uh, as the church we are. And he understands us. He knows uh, what we are like and how we can best be. Uh, shepherded and, and guided into the future. So we're really excited. Now we're going to pray before uh, we have a look at the word. And, and I wonder, instead of me praying, why don't you pray? Um, so just pray just quietly to yourself. Ask God to prepare your hearts um, for what we're going to speak on. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Great. So, we are uh, in this church inside us, Revelation 3. Have your Bibles open in front of you. Our context in Sardis is that um, the Apostle John was imprisoned in the island of Patmos, just off the coast of modern-day Turkey, what was then Asia, and the sender Jesus appeared to him, and he he, he gave him these letters to give to the various churches in the area uh, around Asia, modern-day Turkey. And the letters follow the sequence that the postman would have taken when he went across to the mainland and then started at Ephesus and headed north from there, round to the east, and by this time he had started as church number five. He's already going south. And I've got to say, for those of you who enjoy taking notes, I've got a gem of a structure for you with three different R headings. So our first one's going to be reputation, our second one's going to be reality, and our third one is going to be remedy. Reputation, reality, and remedy. And if that isn't enough, we've got, in fact, three R subheadings under our heading of remedy, just to rub it in and have a bit of fun. 
Now, as we've got established in the sermon series in the book of Revelation, many people have been asking this question, if Jesus was to write a letter to St. Michael's Church, what would he write? What would he say to us as a church? What would he write to the church in London? What might he say to the church in London? And I think that there are many attributes of all seven of these letters that would encourage us as a church in London and St. Michael's and would challenge us. And I think they're both encouragements and challenges in this letter as well to the church in Sardis. So let's have a look at this first heading of reputation. Sardis is situated at a point where lots of inland roads met. Um, It is a place of hustle and bustle, a place of commerce, a place of travelers. You can almost feel the Victoria coach station as you spend time in Sardis. There was a lot of movement going on. And in fact, its history was even more impressive than its present. So Sardis had been the home to King Croesus of Lydia in the ancient times. Uh, his capital city had been Lydia, which at this stage is now called um, Sardis. And he was dethroned by King Cyrus of Persia a couple hundred years back. And so we find in Sardis this lively city with impressive renown. You're feeling London a bit here, aren't you? Uh, It's sort of coming through. And the church in Sardis seems to be in a similar state to the city of Sardis. So we hear Jesus say in verse 1, you have a reputation for being alive. This is a church with a reputation for being alive. In this church of Sardis, there is no talk of sexual immorality like we find in other churches. No talk um, of them going to the temple and eating food sacrificed to idols. No talk of Balaam and the Nicolaitans and Jezebel in those other letters. This is a church we find, therefore, with solid doctrine. A church where the scriptures were taught. The theologian pastor John Stott writes of Sardis, Visitors would exclaim with admiration, What a lively church you have in Sardis. What a lively church this is in Sardis when they attended its services and watched its activities. Sardis was probably a growing church. It is a church with programs and projects and events. It is always doing the next thing. It is a church that didn't lack for people and it didn't lack for money to serve its causes. It's a church that people probably would have wanted to be part of. And in fact, they might have even moved away from their church in order to get to this church in Sardis. It had a reputation. It is obviously doing something right, we would think. But you see, the Lord's character hasn't changed since that time when Samuel was asked to appoint a king. And Samuel stood in front of all the sons of Jesse, and he had them parade in front of them, in front of him. And the Lord said, no, 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 until he got to David. The Lord said to Samuel, the Lord does not look at the things people look at. 
People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So we've got a reputation in Sardis, which you can feel, but it's a reputation without reality, as we'll find out. Verse 1 again. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. You see, the lively external front that we find inside us is just that. It's just an externality. Internally, there was death. The city of Sardis was known for its lax moral standards, and it might well have been that those, in fact, infiltrated the church and caused them to slip into a similar licentiousness. You know the argument that Jesus died for my sins, both past, present, and future, so I might as well do whatever I want. It's all grace, isn't it? That licentiousness that we can slip into. In verse 4, we find out that the people inside us are people who have soiled their clothes. They have literally pooed their pants. And being a man with a toddler, (laughs) I know the experience of that, sorting out pooey pants. And you see, no one seems to be able to smell it in Sardis. But the news that Jesus tells the people of Sardis is that he can smell it. He can smell those pooed pants. They might be able to get away with it. They might be able to get away with it in the city. They might be able to get away with it in their church. But Jesus, the one who knows the hearts, won't let them get away with it. Equally, it's been suggested that in Sardis we have the first example of nominal faith. Those who claim to be Christians and might even believe that they're Christians, but their hearts haven't been given over to Jesus. This is a people who haven't counted the cost of coming to Christ. The people who haven't been willing to sell all to get that field where they found their treasure. Sell all to buy that pearl of great price. This is a people who enjoy the community of church. They enjoy being mentally stimulated by the talks from the front. They maybe even enjoy having the reputation for being a Christian. But you see, for them, church was all about them, and it wasn't about God. The church in Sardis would be worthy of that verse that Jesus quotes in Isaiah 29 to the Pharisees, where he says, These people come near to me with their mouth, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is based on mere human rules that they have been taught. So inside us we find this church with this incredible reputation, a reputation for being alive. But underneath we find that in fact there's death. We find that if you just scratch below the surface inside us, the flesh is dead. So we've had reputation. We've had reality. But come on, 
give us some remedy to this. And I want to divide remedy into three subheadings of remember, repent, and receive. Remember, repent, and receive. In verse 4, we find out that there was a remnant. It's just a cheeky another R, which I haven't included. It's just a bonus point. Um, There was a remedy in verse 4. A few people who hadn't soiled their clothes. A few people who hadn't pooed their pants. And in fact, wherever we go in biblical history, we find that there's this this remnant. We find it in Noah's family, amongst a people who can't stop sinning. We find it among the people of God who um, are spoken of in Isaiah 6. We find it in Elijah and the other prophets who are hidden away. We find it in Simeon and Anna soon after Jesus' birth. We find those people who haven't soiled their clothes. We find that remnant in Sardis. And this remnant is called to be a people who encourage the others to wake up. Come on, wake up. So verse 3, they're told, Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Remember. Now, memory can do wonders for a relationship. I find that every wedding I go to, is yet another one that brings me back to a point ten and a bit years ago where my wife and I stood uh, facing each other in St. Michael the Belfry in York and we committed our lives as a covenant to be together forever. And Paul tells the Ephesian church that what we see in marriage is just a pointer It's just a temporal pointer that points to something eternal, an eternal relationship that we have with our God in heaven, where we become the bride, the church together, and Jesus is the bridegroom. Marriage is something that points to this eternal relationship. And and that's the beauty of it, that unlike marriage, our relationship with God will be eternal. So the church and Sardis should remember what they've heard. And what have they heard? They've heard the gospel. They've heard the good news. They've heard that there was a point where they were dead in their sins. And yet the Father, in his love and his mercy and his grace, sent his one and only begotten Son, into the creation that he made. And he sent him to the cross with a mission to die. And as Jesus was dying on the cross, literally he was just asking for those soiled clothes, asking for those pooed pants. He was saying, come on, I've come to die so that you may have clean clothes, that you may have a relationship restored with my Father in heaven. And so they've heard this incredible good news that Jesus died on our behalf. And so you hear in the ascended Jesus 
saying to the church in Sardis, Sardis, remember what you have heard. Hold fast to the gospel. Remember what you have heard. Secondly, they're called to repent. Remember a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about repentance as different orientations, and, and we said that, uh, that when we live for ourselves, for our ego, life is all about me, 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 at that point, Christ comes in, and we hear the gospel, we hear this good news that Jesus has died for us, and we literally, repentance, we literally, we turn around, we do a 180 degree turn, where we face God, we want to live for him. We take his death on our behalf and we say, we want to receive you. We want to receive you and to live for you. But at the same time, as we go through our lives, there's always this temptation to do this very slow shift. Slowly, slowly, slowly. Back to the point, we're no longer living for God but we're living for ourselves. And that seems to be what's happened in Sardis. They'd come from this point of living for themselves. They'd been reorientated on God, and they had done a slow shift back. And this is a time where, outwardly, we might still be coming to church. We might have listened to so many sermons and read so much of the Bible. We know all the answers. We're the person who knows the answers in home group. But the question is, what has happened internally? Is that internal focus still on Christ, or are we living for ourselves? And so the church in Sardis, which has found that the word of God is no longer cutting it, or maybe it's that their hearts have got hardened, are the people who called again. Come on, you did this once and you need to do it again. You found that you've reorientated yourself on yourself. Come on, reorient yourself on God. We hear the risen Christ saying, Sardis, repent, reorient yourself on Christ. Now, there's a little word that I skipped out in verse 3 as I was reading it, and it is this word, remember. Sorry, it's the word received, sorry. Remember, therefore, what you have received. So what Sardis heard was what? What Sardis heard was the gospel. But what Sardis received was something else. Think back to Acts chapter 2. It's Pentecost and Um, The crowd is cut to the quick, and Peter stands up and he says, repent, which is this reorientate yourself, turn around, reorientate yourself from being orientated to yourself onto God. So repent and be baptized, and baptism, as we know, is an outward sign of the inward reality that we have died with Christ and been raised with Christ. Repent and be baptized every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
So they heard the gospel and they received the gift of the Holy Spirit. When we give our lives to Christ, repenting and believing, we receive the Holy Spirit. So every Christian is a temple of the Holy Spirit, a house, a place where the Holy Spirit dwells. All Christians have the Holy Spirit living in them, but not all Christians are filled with the Holy Spirit. So therefore, Paul writes to the Ephesians in chapter 5, verse 18, that they should continue, and there's a present continuous in this, they, they should continue to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So we find that when we come to Christ, when we say yes to Jesus, that we want to live our lives for him, we receive, like this water, we receive the Holy Spirit, the glass as us, and the water is the Spirit. We receive the Holy Spirit. But Paul cautions us to continue to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so that's daily saying, Lord, fill me, fill me, carry on filling me up. And we find that we end up being a people who are overflowing with the Holy Spirit. So we find ourselves at work or at school or at home, and we bump into people in social situations, and we, oh, we end up, we just end up spilling over into their lives with the Holy Spirit. And people say to us, there's something different about you. You aren't like me. There's something different about me, about you. Because we're overflowing um, with the Holy Spirit uh, that we have received. And so this church in Sardis, we find, is no longer operating in the power of the Holy Spirit. There are people who have allowed the Holy Spirit to decrease and decrease and decrease. Until there's this question, is the Holy Spirit living in them at all? So therefore, John Stott writes on this verse, sound doctrine, and bear in mind that Sardis is a church of sound doctrine and biblical foundation. Sound doctrine on its own cannot reclaim a church from death. Sound doctrine on its own cannot reclaim a church from death. Orthodoxy itself can sometimes be dead. They the church in Sardis, had received more than the gospel. They had received the Holy Spirit. And John Stott backs up his understanding of what was going on here in Sardis by pointing to the fact that all the introductions to these letters to the churches are always applicable to that particular church. So we have a look at verse 1 where we find that these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God. And our understanding of the seven spirits is that they're different attributes of the one Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who they're missing. This letter to Sardis feels a bit like a parent walking into the bedroom of her teenage child. And it's 11 a.m. in the morning, And she says to him, Johnny, get up. You're missing the day. You're missing out on this day. Come on, wake up, get up. But the teenager thinks differently. He thinks, come on, mom, 
I live a busy life. I'm full on at school, and in fact, I'm acing it at school. And there's sport. I need to stay fit to stay ahead of the other flankers in the rugby team, to stay, to stay as number one flanker. And, and then there's my, my life at, you know, with my friends. In fact, that's the reason why I'm tired. I was out with my friends last night. And then there's social media and Instagram. I've got to stay ahead of my posts. And, and, and if you want to chuck this all at me, Mum, in fact, I've read Matthew Walker's book on why we sleep. And I know that the circadian rhythms in teenagers differ from those of younger children and adults. I know that I need my sleep. But the mother, you see, loves her child and doesn't want her child to miss the day. So she shakes him and she says, come on, get up. And that's what we find in this letter. And, and I bet that that teenage child will get pretty irritated with his mother. But the irritation might cause him to wake up. And I bet that the readers of this letter in Sardis would have got pretty irritated with what they had read in the letter. But if irritation causes them to wake up and wake up in the spirit, then it's worth it. And I find it just amazing that this point that we have Jesus writing to Sardis is a point just decades after Jesus' death. We're still in the apostolic era. John is still alive. The canon of Scripture is still wide open. And yet there are churches who are walking away from the power of the Spirit and rather operating in their own strength. However, Scripture tells us that this shouldn't surprise us because the Holy Spirit has always been resisted by the Lord's people. As Stephen shouted out, just before he is about to be martyred, the first martyr. He says to the scripture-touting Sanhedrin, you are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. And I think the reason for that is because we want God, but we want him on our terms. And I think that our current culture doesn't help us at all. Our culture promotes autonomy, which almost has a godlike status. We idolize independence and being in control of our lives. But as Jesus says to Nicodemus, the Holy Spirit blows where he wills. There is one in charge, and it is not us. And we dislike this. And we'd rather settle for interacting with God in a way that we can evaluate him, that we can study him, in a way that we can even become good at church. But the Bible points us to a God who we hand everything over to, and all authority is included. A couple of weeks ago, we said that when we come to Christ, coming to Christ means giving everything up. It means being willing to sell all for that field that contains the treasure. Sell all for that precious pearl, the pearl of great price. 
And equally, coming to Christ means we don't get some of God, but we get all of God. He becomes our authority. So we can't accept God as love, but not as holy. We can't accept God as compassionate Father and not accept him as judge. We can't ask for God the Father and God the Son without having God the Holy Spirit. We have God in his entirety, or we get nothing. The Son ascended into heaven. But he left us as his body here on earth to continue what he was doing, proclaiming the word with the power of the Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who enabled Jesus to perform those miracles on earth. And it is the Holy Spirit who he left with us, who came upon his people at Pentecost. We believe in a God who intervenes, and he intervenes in our world now. And the Holy Spirit is not about style. The Holy Spirit is not necessarily about songs. I'm not suggesting that. I don't actually think that the Holy Spirit cares much for style or songs. The Holy Spirit isn't limited by our style. The Holy Spirit is only limited by us not wanting him to rule in our lives and our church. In fact, I think that the Holy Spirit is most interested in a church with a strong biblical foundation. It was through the pages of scripture that John Collins in those early days at uh, All Souls Langham Place encountered the Holy Spirit and was challenged by them. And said, if the Holy Spirit was at work like that in the past, why wouldn't he continue like that in the future? And he saw an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Which is the same words of scripture that encouraged David Watson at a church called St. Andrew's the Great, the Round Church in Cambridge. Again, with its focus on scripture and made him ask those same questions. And he saw incredible outpourings of the Holy Spirit up in York, at St. Michael the Belfry, across the country, and in this church when Teddy Saunders was here. So much so that Teddy Saunders said to him, David, I'd love to run a mission for six weeks in a row where you do all the preaching. Uh, And that's what happened in this very building here in London. The same words of scripture encouraged and challenged Michael Green with his Ewan Minster Foundation and brought him to the conclusion that there is a power of God in the Holy Spirit that is missing out in his life and his work for the Lord. And the result of the Holy Spirit, where he goes, is bringing a people from death to life. A people who are dead in their sins are brought to life. And a church... That's encouraged by people who come to faith in God. I don't think that there's anything that encourages a church more than seeing friends who they've been praying for for ages, impacted by the power of the Spirit, 
encountering the gospel, saying yes to Jesus, and their lives being visibly changed for all around them to see. I think that's how churches are encouraged, by seeing that sort of transformation in others and their lives. And that's what happens with the power of the Holy Spirit. And we see, therefore, the word, what you have heard, and the, God, and the Holy Spirit, what you have received, are two that are tightly kept together by Jesus in this letter. Remember what you have received, the Holy Spirit, and what you have heard in the gospel. The two have to stay together. And with those two together, with the word and the spirit, exciting things happen in a church. So as Michael Green writes, the period before the end, this is the period of hope before Jesus returns. We don't know how long it's going to be, but our hope is in a a Christ who died and a Christ who will return. The period before the end is no barren period of waiting. It is a time of the Spirit. It is a time of evangelism. Now, as a church here at St. Michael's, we are a people with a strong reputation. You go anywhere in this city, you go anywhere around the churches in the country, you'll find St. Michael's has a strong reputation. I think that we're also a church who is really good at remembering the gospel. The gospel is taught here over and over again in a way that no one can miss it. That's brilliant. And I think we're also a church who is good at calling people to repent, calling for changed lives. But I think our challenge for us today as a church, are we willing to remember what we received? Are we willing to be filled by the Holy Spirit continually over and over again? till we are people who are overflowing into the lives of those around us in a way that challenges those who don't yet believe and encourages those who do. Let's pray.